0: All right, good afternoon and welcome to this lecture sponsored by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online MAs and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event or visit iwp.edu. On behalf of IWP, I would like to thank all our supporters who make IWP events possible. To support the mission of IWP, please visit iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today, we will be hearing from Mr. Douglas Burton, who will deliver a lecture on the topic of Christian genocide in Nigeria, its causes and reasons it continues. Douglas Burton is an award-winning conflict reporter specializing in Nigerian war news Mr. Burton mentors conflict reporters in North-Central Nigeria as the managing editor of TruthNigeria.com. Since 2019, he has authored countless reports with the Epoch Times, Zenger News, and the Catholic News Agency. His work has been featured in Fox Nation, American Thought Leaders, and the Westminster Institute, and the Washington Times. Mr. Burton was honored by the Catholic Media Association in June 2023 as a first place winner for best coverage of religious liberty issues. Having served the Washington Times Corporation as an assignment editor for two decades, Doug brought his skills to Baghdad in 2005 to support the U.S. occupation there for two years. From 2015, he began covering the campaign against the Islamic State as an independent reporter until 2017. And switched to reporting the persecution of christians in nigeria shortly thereafter he produced the most complete story about the blasphemy murder of deborah emmanuel on may 12 2022 in nigeria's northern city of sokoto with that please join me in welcoming mr douglas burton thank
1: you appreciate it yeah. thank you, thank you sir. Sir.
0: Thanks for this.
1: Hi everybody, uh, this is such an honor. Uh, I've known about IWP for many years. I've been here for lectures a few years ago. I came here for disinformation lectures about Eastern Europe, I was amazed. Um, I am a lifelong, I'm a journalist, uh, I'm not a professor. I don't, I haven't published any big books. Uh, but I'm working on one now for Nigeria. Uh, I, I wanna just get right into it. I might finish this slideshow early uh, because I'm really hoping to get some questions from you guys. I'm really honored to have Dean Harmon here. He's uh, someone I need to talk to because I report on counterterrorism terrorism too. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Bosch. Uh, so let's let's go right into this thing here. I wanna start with, uh, well, we're gonna start with this question. Christian genocide in Nigeria, is it really a genocide? Well, it definitely is. Now I got started, you know, I was in Iraq for a couple of years Uh, working with State Department, and uh, it was such, uh, well, it was such a mash of emotions and questions, and it was stunning. I mean, it was, when I got there, I mean, there was, you'd get down to your desk in your air-conditioned room, and a few minutes later, you hear a big boom, and every day you get, you hear these two, at least two big booms, and across the river, in the Tigris River, that boom was killing 60 people. That boom was, Maybe a mile away, where Iraqi recruits, uh, you know for the police force were getting killed as they stood in line. So those booms meant people were getting killed, but I never saw it. We never saw anything. Sometimes rockets or you know missiles would come close to where we were working, but we never saw the real war that we saw. We heard helicopters clattering in every day, bringing the wounded to the hospital. Now, with uh, Nigeria. I'm dealing with something uh, kind of the same i'm I'm dealing with something that's long distance, but I'm taking these reports from firsthand witnesses from reporters in Nigeria who are close to the action and who themselves are in danger sometimes so the the loss of life is much greater uh, we I help advocate for a genocide declaration by Senator i mean by secretary Kerry in two thousand and sixteen but that was to declare genocide against Christians and the Yazidis in northern Iraq. But the total number of dead was about 5,000 people, I, you know, we heard later. But in Nigeria, it's much, much bigger. In Nigeria, there's 35,000 people who have been killed by the ISIS insurgency called uh, Boko Haram, and uh, the Islamic State of West Africa. But there's a bigger number who have been killed by radicalized Muslim bandit gangs in the Uh, Northwest and the North Central part. And that's really where I, that's a lot of what we focus on. So let's just go right into it. I'd like to share, I'd like to share this with you. This is a little film created by our sponsor, Equipping the Persecuted. Let's see if we can get this going. And there is, in this little three minute film, there is a war crime I'm going to tell you about. It's okay. Safety is a human need
2: to be safe in our own home, to put our children to bed knowing they will wake up, to walk outside without fear of harm. But some of us do not live in safety. Some of us are attacked in our sleep, healed for our faith. Some of us have seen our parents and children caught in gunfire because they were too slow to run away. Right now, today, in Nigeria, our Christian brothers and sisters this is war are crime. being killed right there, because that guy. they believe in Jesus. More Christians are killed for their faith in Nigeria than in every other country of the world combined. 90% of all people killed for their faith are Nigerians. Imagine a little girl. Her name is Manny. She is eight months old and strapped to her mother's back. They are running. It's night, fire and explosions all around. Men with scars over their faces fire guns into the fleeing crowd. A bullet tears through Manny's little back before lodging into her mother, taking her life. Her father, siblings, and each member of her family is gunned down. But somehow Manny is still alive. She lays helpless blood mingling with her mothers. Smoke rises and the world is at its end. But then, hands reach down, lifting her up out of the smoke and wreckage, into safety and care. Manny is a real little girl, just like your daughter or niece or granddaughter. And rather than being left to die, she survived the devastating attack on her family and village because of a network of people who go into the chaos while the fires still burn and pull lives from the wreckage and help them rebuild. They are known as Equipping the Persecuted, a team of Nigerians and Americans on a mission to end radical Muslim Jihad against Christians in Nigeria. Equipping the Persecuted works to eliminate these terrorist attacks before they ever happen attacks against Christian villages, pastors, and churches. And they do everything they can to mitigate the damage done to widows and orphans like Manny, caused by this ongoing jihad. Manny is getting the medical care and ongoing support she needs today because of equipping the persecuted and people like you. What if you could protect one little girl from this devastation? What if you could stop one village from being attacked? Would you want to know how?
1: Okay. Well, if you if you don't choke up when you watch that, I mean, you got to be a stone. I I remember last year I was fundraising a Nigerian church. I go to a Nigerian church. I. I I go to Nigerian churches because I'd like to be in Nigeria to be in solidarity with the victims. I can't be there, so I go to Nigerian churches. And I went to one Nigerian church and fundraised for this little girl Manny because I'd done a story on her, and we collected several hundred dollars. God bless them. Uh, the question I want to begin this thing with is, "What is Nigeria?" That's a odd question. People have seen my slides. They say, "Why are you asking a dumb question like this?" Not for IWP. They, they they're way above that man. You know, what is Nigeria? No. Uh, it's not an idle question because we're, I understand your school, it's about diplomacy and it's about the the fact that Nigeria is a major US ally. Okay, so for me personally, Nigeria is not just a nation. I don't approach this in a detached way. This is just a thought experiment. You know, for me, it's very personal because uh, I I started doing this work, you know, as a freelance guy, freelance, and then what I discovered Uh, what Nigeria is really about, about the the depth of the atrocities. I really got connected to it. I mean, I got hooked into this like maybe you did a little bit when you watched this film done by my sponsor, my patron, Mr. Judd Salt. So what is Nigeria? Well, it's a country, richest nation in Africa, biggest population in Africa, most corrupt and violent maybe among many corrupt nations in Africa, major US ally. Market for US products. I mean, if you're selling wheat and automobiles and satellites, Nigeria is a great market. Okay, but what is Nigeria? It you know, the if we are going to have an alliance with this big country, what kind of country are we aligned with? And this is going to be my focus at the end of this slideshow, also. Who are we aligned with and who do they think they are allied with? All right. It makes a difference. You know, it, it, I believe, okay. Why should Americans care about Nigeria? Well, Africa, it cannot be a peaceful and prosperous continent until the problem of Nigeria is solved. And that's because Nigeria, believe it or not, is on track to become the second most populous country on earth by the end of the 21st century. Already, Nigeria is on track to have the same population as the United States in 2022. Five, okay. Nigeria has a disputed population now. Its last official census was in 2006. If you go to our website today, uh, truthnigeria.com, we have a story posted there about the controversial nature of the Nigerian uh, census. The census has been postponed several times because it's very controversial, it's politicized. Uh, The population could be as high as 300 million already. The reason it has been politicized and postponed is that Nigeria is pretty much split between Muslims in the north and Christians in the south. There are many pockets of Christians in the north and big pockets of Muslims in the south also. But the uh, folks in charge of the the government, I would call it a regime rather than a government that's truly accountable to its people. The uh, northern Muslims want to or make a strong effort to uh, impress the census takers with how many people are in their regions. In fact, uh, as the story says, uh, heads of household in the northern part of Nigeria frequently exaggerate the number of people in their household. So do we have an accurate count of how many Nigerians are in the north? Because the people in the south claim that it's it's a very exaggerated number. But at any rate, why should Americans care about Nigeria because it's a very, very rich country. It's going to be so powerful. Uh, when, we, when we look at Nigeria now, it seems to be an exotic place. We Americans don't realize how wealthy this country is. It has huge mineral resources. Not only it's the fourth nation, it's the world's fourth uh, largest producer of uh, oil. It's the leading producer of, of oil in Africa, but, it has many, many other resources. It has tons of gold. In the state of Niger, which is the biggest state, it's uh, west of the capital of Abuja, every single county in that state has commercially producible gold in its dirt. It has also rare earth minerals. It has the largest store of arable land of any country in Nigeria. You may know that the People's Republic of China has 50, 80 year contracts for farming in Ethiopia. They don't have these big contracts in Nigeria, but they will, and they will produce huge amounts of agricultural products. Now, one thing that occurs to me that hardly anyone talks about is the greatest resource from Nigeria, and that's not its minerals, it's its people. Think about it. The birth rate in in the developed countries, United States, has a negative birth rate. Did you know that? But the only reason our population is growing is because of immigration, especially illegal migration. Uh, Europe has a very steeply declining birth rate. China has a a declining birth rate. Northeast Asia has a very drastically declining population. Korea is going to disappear if they don't turn things around. So only in Africa, all the African countries have population increase. Uh, So, the reason we should care about Nigeria is it's going to be such an important country for manufacturing, the labor supply, 25, 30 years from now, where is it going to come from? It's not going to come from Europe. It's going to come from Africa. And this country already dominates West Africa, but it's going to dominate the whole continent. Okay let's see if we can make this happen. OK. My Nigeria began as an encounter with death. Now, I almost died six six years ago because I I had cancer, I almost died, I was in the hospital. And while there, I had just kind of, I I got interested, I I got interested in doing something significant. At a, a, a point when I was recovering, I thought, you know, I might not get out of this hospital, but if I do, I want to do something significant. So about a year later, I discovered that there was a, a, a thing I could report on called Nigeria, and I could do the same thing I was doing with Iraq. I could talk to people uh, on the ground, and uh, they all speak English, so it was going to be a lot easier. <clears throat> so I didn't know anybody at first in, in uh, Nigeria. So I asked my friends, and uh, just one thing came—you uh, know, one thing led to another. I started calling people uh, in the zones where there was conflict, and because I'm because I'm a, uh, I'm a person of faith. Uh, I started praying with them. I said, "Well, you know, I, I heard their stories. I thought, I thought, well, uh, I was already, you know, on prayer calls, you know, for the nation. So I thought, okay, I'll pray with these guys from Nigeria. And what happened? was right away is they started giving me information about attacks. Like a few days later, I, I first called this. I called this Catholic priest in uh, Adamo, as Northeast Nigeria, which is Boko Haram territory. And then uh, about a week later." I got a call from his priest friend, uh, his, uh, you know, young priest. He said, oh, well, Mr. Burton, we heard that you're interested in Boko Haram and right now the Boko Haram boys are burning down our town. And so I thought, what? So he said, yeah, all the, our congregation is up on the top of the hill. We're looking down into the, the town. All the, the bank's been robbed and uh, all the buildings are in flames. So I, I took notes. I wrote the story up, I sent it to the Washington Examiner the next day, they published it, and I got paid for it. So that, what I realized is, you know, th- this, through this human connection, you know, through just a prayer, at, you know, actionable information can come. Right. So I thought, well, what if a lot of people would do this? It was at this point, you know, when I started uh, to report, I had recognized, but probably a lot of you know already, the story about Nigeria, it's not getting out to the West because the Western media, they don't care about it, they don't know about it. But I thought, well, maybe it can get out through uh, person-to-person connections. Now, this is, this is because when I was in Kirkuk, I tried to do something similar. I tried to connect uh, civil society organizations in Kirkuk, like the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts, to Boy Scout and Girl Scout organizations in the United States. It's called, you, you guys are experts, you know it's called citizen-to-citizen diplomacy, right? So I thought, well, there's an opportunity here. So I started to think about this, and I've, over the last four years, I haven't found many takers who did what I did, but I still believe that there's a chance that citizen-to-citizen diplomacy, when it involves journalists like myself or truth-tellers or people who are just good on social media, it can help get the message out. So let's see here, let's check the time, okay. I began by meeting my helpers. Now, this is a young man named Lawrence Zongo. He's a little bit old. He's four years older now. He's in his early 30s. When I met Lawrence, uh, Lawrence was a corpse photographer. Now, what that means is uh, in, in Nigeria, in the killing zones, these, there are massacres. And they're big, they're, usually the massacre is done by, it's done by bandits, so-called bandits, but they're ethnic cleansing squads. People don't like that word ethnic cleansing because they think it's pejorative. You know, you, you can't call people vermin, it's, but actually that's what it is. It's ethnic cleansing and so it's land grabbing. These uh, gangs of killers come in like 50 strong, sometimes 100 strong, they burn down a village, they kill men, women and children, sometimes they rape people. So then uh, in the middle of the night or early in the morning, Lawrence would be called and he would have to come in and, and take photos of the bodies. The reason he had to do this is that uh, in Nigeria they don't wait for funerals; they have to bury people the next day. That's you know that's the Arab uh, you know practice. So if there was to be any record, he had to get that photo right away. Uh, so that's so he had a very grim uh, task, and he was one of the first persons that I trained to be a reporter for Zanger News. And he had some really big scoops. Let's see. Also, I met. I encountered many tragic burial scenes like this one. Now, this is hard to see. It's hard for me to not choke up. This is a, a recent burial scene from, well, it's actually from this year. This is uh, this is in Plateau State. You see a man. This is a Reverend Peter Datchel. Uh, it's on a rainy day. It's a cold rainy day in Plateau State, and he's kneeling by the the open pit grave where about 12 of his parishioners are being buried. Now they can't afford coffins. These are these are pretty low income people. So they wrap them up in uh, brightly colored uh, drapes and they just bury them in these shallow graves and you saw it in the other film. So this is, this is a man who I think is in the, <laughs> he's really in the, the pits of hell uh, because he's done this many times. This happens, this has happened dozens and dozens of times. It's just like this. This, this is the massacre. Uh, they, they, and oddly enough, there's very little investigation that goes on. Afterwards, this, is, this intrigued me as a journalist. How could this possibly be, right? So uh, then this, this young lady as Deborah Emmanuel, beautiful lady who was murdered just a year ago, a little bit over a year ago. And, this is, uh, and I, got the, I got the award from the Catholic Media Association because we had the complete story about Deborah. Now it was kind of because I had these extra connections that I was able to get this story. Our story, which appeared in Catholic News Agency, was the only story that got her name right. There's tons of press about this woman's blasphemy murder in Sokoto, but they had her name wrong. And we were the only folks who actually had connected to her family, because I had been going to this Nigerian church over in District Heights, and it's called Ekwa. I knew she was a member of this church, evangelical church winning all. So I called. I asked for a contact. They gave me one. I, I contacted the guy, the minister of the Equa Church in Sokoto, and he said, yeah, we know Deborah. I mean, she used to go to this church, and her relatives are here. I said, okay. So then I interviewed her uncle. He was an eyewitness to this murder. So I had the only story with the eyewitnesses. But what really killed me, that no other news media got, is she was not alone when she was killed. She was with her cousin. <laughs> this, was, this was amazing. So her cousin named Sabatu was also a student at the university. They were about to graduate together. And, and Sabatu and Deborah were in a shed at the entrance of Shigar, Shehu Shigari College, uh, where a mob tried to kill them for three hours. They tried to burn them out. They tried to get into that shed. As a dramatic story, they were protected by a... Uh, they were protected by a university employee. He had no arms, but he he kept the... He kept the crowd away for as long as he could. They beat him up. But uh, finally, they did get into this. They finally did get into this shed and they pulled these women out. First, they tried to kill Sabitu because they thought she was Deborah Emmanuel. This whole thing, welcome, uh, Reverend Juma. So they thought that her fellow students thought that she had blasphemed the prophet because she had uh, shared something on a WhatsApp social media channel. Uh, and she was—it was a social. It was a WhatsApp WhatsApp channel, you know, for people in her school, you know, in her class taking home economics, and uh, they were accusing her, you know, they were jealous. Some of them were jealous of her because she had passed the exams already, and uh, they were talking about their, uh, their. They were invoking their religious themes, and she said, "You shouldn't be talking about this stuff. I don't want to hear about this. I don't talk to me about your prophets. You know, I'm saved by the Holy Spirit. You know." And they got offended. She said, don't talk to me about your nonsense prophets. They thought, oh, she said nonsense prophets. She's blasphemed the prophet. So it happened very quickly. Rumors spread. Those uh, fellow students decided we have a blasphemer among us. It's our duty to kill her. And the very next day, they gathered at her dorm to start to beat her up. So we had the eyewitness testimony because I had uh, sabbatus, Testimony from it, and I had the testimony of her uncle and her cousins who watched the whole thing happen. So this is this is so awful; I, you can't imagine that something like this could happen. But here's the thing that we did that other newspapers didn't do. So when I got into this, uh, I started to train my team to do forensic investigations. When when these crimes happen, I ask my reporters, now where were the police when this happened, okay, how far away were it? Where was the army? How far away did they have to drive? Because I, I know, I found from experience that these massacres would happen and the police stations or the army stations, they're not very far away. They were like a 10 minute drive away, but the army or the, usually the army would always arrive hours late or sometimes the next day. So in this case with Deborah, uh, I called up the commissioner of police of Sokoto. Now, you, here's the amazing thing. You can call up the top official in the police department in every state because their numbers are they're, they're online. So you can call them up, and many times they will answer. So I called up the commissioner of police for Sokoto. He picked up and talked to me. He said, how, how, this woman was besieged for three hours in this shed. Where were your police? He said, well, we came. Oh, yeah, we, you, you brought, well, how many people did you bring? Well, we had 17. Actually, other people said there was 50 police. Okay, And so you stood off 100 yards away. Is that right? And You didn't intervene? You let this this crowd murder this woman? He said, oh, no, we intervened. We, how did you do that? Well, we fired tear gas canisters. That is true. They fired tear gas canisters from 100 yards away. But then after the tear gas would dissipate in the, dissipate? Those crowd that crowd came right back to try and burn that place down. And the police never came forward to try and rescue this girl. There, we, we know by happenstance that the secret police sent five guys and they battled with the crowd. and they, Some of them, they got beat up very badly, but they couldn't keep the crowd. They couldn't rescue the girl. The Sokoto police stood there and watched it all go down. They watched the crowd take this woman out and beat her to death. They beat her with logs some people say they burnt her in the house uh, while she was still alive. Uh, it's incredibly tragic, unbelievably tragic. Now, the, the cousin Sabitu, she got away. When they realized they, she was not Deborah, they let her go. She was a little bit banged up. She went home, and then uh, we found her, and I fundraised my Nigerian church. We, sent, we, we hired a reporter in Kebi, which is close, close to where she lived, and we... We, we got an interview with her. Uh, so that's how that happened. Nigeria, uh, is a, Nigeria is a country with major water resources and land resources, okay? These two big rivers, Niger and Benue, in order to be a powerful developed country, you need water, you need land, you need people. Nigeria has all of those things. Take a look at this uh, schematic. This shows a uh, this shows the Sahel region uh, in Africa. The Sahel region has the highest birth rate of any region in the world. Nigeria is just on the southern border. It's in the sub-Saharan area bordering Republic of uh, uh, Niger. It, its northern states have almost the exact same birth rate uh, seven seven uh, children per woman as Sahel. So they have a surging birth rate. Now on the right-hand side of the scheme, you see this area called the, this area of yellow that's the middle belt and that's where about 45 million people live uh, that is where there is terrific persecution and ethnic cleansing All right. you may you, you have heard now you see on the far right the northeast part of the country or you see these states of Borno and uh, che, uh, Borno and uh, Yobe and Ademua that's the uh, that's the roaming haven of Boko Haram there are three major insurgencies. Two are connected to ISIS, that's Boko Haram in the Islamic State of West Africa. Then there's another insurgency that's in the north central part of the state called Ansaru. that's in the state of Kaduna. So Kaduna is uh, not in the Middle Belt area but sometimes considered part of the Middle Belt. So we are tracking the the violence uh, using uh, uh, on the ground reporters in these states. What is the root cause of Nigerian Christian genocide? Now, this is a very important question. There are two narratives. The prevailing narrative and the one that is uh, promoted, and it's in many, many reports of our own Department of State, is that the the ethnic cleansing or the the, the death toll is caused by conflict of communities. It's intercommunal conflict, and it's indirectly, it's uh, caused by climate change. So the the rule the what they will have us know is that their climate change in the north and the Sahel is forcing herding people to come south because uh, they can't get enough uh, pasture and green uh, green land for their herds and they are clashing with the booming population of people in the middle belt. Okay, that is partially true. Uh, the uh, The established narrative is that poverty and bad Federal management also is a cause of these clashes. Now, but if you talk to the victims, they will tell you it's ethnic cleansing. It's people coming in the middle of the night shouting "Allahu Akbar," uh, and you know they are uh, taking our land. And then uh, after a few years, after the majority of Christian people have been moved out, uh, then the the Muslim people, chiefly the of the ethnicity called Fulani, they take over and rename it. And uh, then it becomes an Islamic area. There are, we have a list of of, of over 500 villages and towns that have been taken over by ethnic cleansers. They're all virtually always members of the Fulani ethnicity. And this has been happening for 20 years, but it has accelerated since 2015. Okay, here's a picture of uh, folks in it, uh, farmers, these are, lawrence uh, lawrence uh uh Zongo did these photos these this shows you people uh doing collective farming and on the right you see the kind of land in plateau state now this is great land look how green it is this is uh the climate there is like san francisco it's actually cool it's not cold they don't get snow but it's very cool and there's a lot of water they have they get quite a bit of rainfall they have uh, a lot of rivers lakes, so it 's actually very good for farming and it 's very good for herdings uh, here's <clears throat> Nigeria is the scene of a war of narratives this is the this is the most important thing maybe the most important thing I want to leave with you today uh, the narrative of, that is promoted by the government itself is that the death totals is due to something called the farmer-herder conflict, the farmer-herder conflict paradigm. And that paradigm is as old as Genesis. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, there was you know, Adam and Eve, and they had two sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain killed his son, right? Abel, uh, Cain was a herder. I mean, I mean, he was a herder. And Abel, I mean, Cain was the person who was cultivating crops, and Abel was the herder, right? So it's a little bit reversed, but it's the same kind of thing: farmer-herder conflict. Uh, the until very recently, all of the newspaper stories that described these these attacks mentioned that the attackers were unknown gunmen. This is a misnomer. The newspaper stories say that the, the authorities, the police, and the uh, it, and the soldiers say it's unknown gunmen, but that's a lie. These they're not unknown gunmen; they're absolutely known. They are. Fulani, uh, they're either Fulani terrorists, they're Fulani bandits. Now, since the presidency, since the president changed, the Nigerian army on its website is now using the term terrorist. They are not using the term unknown gunman. And it appears that the Nigerian army is sincerely trying to enforce the law and to cut back on this violence. So that shows that President Bola Tenibu seems to be making an effort to show that he's turning over a new leaf. He doesn't want to be tagged with the bad reputation of his predecessor, Mohammed ibn buhari who was of the Fulani ethnicity. Paradox of gun control. Here's something I also want to leave you with. Uh, all of the people coming in and killing others, they have assault rifles. They have AK-47s or AK-49s. The people they are killing don't have any weapons because of gun control, which is the most successful gun control you can imagine. If uh, many, many times when farmers tr- get a weapon, they, buy an, they make a gun or they get an amateur uh, weapon, they are arrested for it. Those guns are taken away from them. So, that's because, so because of gun control, there's a huge imbalance uh, in these raids. The farmers can hardly defend themselves. So they do try to, They form teams of volunteer neighborhood watchers, okay? They call them vigilantes, but they're not vigilantes that go out and uh, rove around the countryside to kill their enemies, as the government narrative would have you know. The concept that's continually emphasized by the government uh, and the Muslim promoters, Muslim uh, polemicists, and by our own State Department, is that these deaths are caused by intercommunal conflict, right? So that implies reciprocity, right? You've got armed people who are Muslims and you have armed people who are Christians. Here's the the fact, when the uh, the groups of uh, terrorists come in 50 or 100 strong uh, and they they encounter resistance when there's a band of so-called vigilantes that are shooting back at them, the government calls that a clash. There's no reciprocity. There are no such thing as roving bands of Christian militia. The other thing to ex- understand with Nigeria is a factor which is causing this loss of life is corruption. Here's a picture of a guy uh, who's doing a little scheme in Lagos. Now, there you see a plank over a puddle, right? And there's a young man, uh, you know, sitting in the blue chair. What's he doing? He's charging a fee for anybody who wants to walk over that plank to get to the other side, right? This is a very common tout scheme in Nigeria. Now, the reason I love this is that this is showing you corruption at the most basic level. Everywhere you go, there's someone who's charging you to you know, wipe your windshield or to give you permission to drive down his street or his alley, whatever. So this is all over. The reason I get put this slide in here is that corruption goes all the way up to the top of society. The, the generals in charge of the military, they retire, and they, uh, they are hugely wealthy. You know Like a, a couple of years ago, a, a major general in the Air Force unexpectedly died. And then at, after he passed away, it was discovered he owned vast amounts of wealth. He owned chains of uh, motels, and he had factories. He had all kinds of wealth. How did he get all of that on a government salary? Right? So this is what you're dealing with here. It reminds me you know, well I won't get into it. you know Joe Biden was once the poorest man in in Congress for i remember for years and years he was the guy he only had a house, a little beach house, and then he had two cars on the garage for years and years and then after he got to become uh, vice president well totally totally different story okay here is here's a guy here's a this is a vigilante this is a guy who's made a pipe gun now the question the question the, the thing we want to point out here is paradoxes of military engagement. Does the military assist village raiders? And this is where I have to, I have to sadly confess to you, and this bothers me to tell you this, but they absolutely do assist them, and we have evidence of that. I want to tell you, I want to give you one instance. Uh, This man is defending his village in One of the remote villages in Plateau State, which is you know uh, north central Nigeria. Now, there was a engagement we covered in in our site in Kambun, K O M B U, and it's not middle of September. Now, in this uh, battle, you can find it on our site. There were about fifty of the village raiders who came in after nightfall, and the the village was defended by. it was defended by, I think we had uh, 16 of these vigilantes with these amateur, with these kinds of weapons. Now, after a couple of hours of fighting, the raiders departed. Now, the cost of that engagement was 10 of these local guys were killed. Okay. But, the unusual, but then six of the raiders were killed okay. also. Now, let me contrast that with other stories we have done. For example, my friend Masara, uh, Masara Kim, who did this story for us, he was in a firefight with his uh, friend, a, a barrister, a lawyer, from, and this was on May 16th, and it was in a, a town called Kwok. There was a firefight, and the, my, our, my, my reporters were with a column of a Nigerian army. There was three trucks, I think. The column had about 25 or 30 soldiers there. The firefight lasted over an hour. Uh, the soldiers put themselves into the, they sheltered behind a primary school and they fired constantly. And there was a constant fire back. My, my reporters had to take shelter there. Now, during this one hour firefight, there were no casualties on either side. The army didn't have any casualties and the bad guys didn't have any casualties. Masara Kim and his friend, they went by truck uh, about two miles away and they saw on a hillside 500 of these these, uh, killers. These are mercenaries, bandits, terrorists, whatever. 500 guys, okay? No casualties. Now, this is not an isolated case. I remember a year ago uh, in a neighboring state uh there was a there was a firefight uh near a, a town called uh Zengol A series of villages were raided and many, many people were killed. Now you know, I talked to the uh general that he was at that time the colonel in charge of the forward operating base in Kafanchan. Okay. I did we've done many stories about that area because it's one of the killing grounds. So again you can get through to these top guys. Uh he was kind of a nice guy he was uh Christian he told me about being, this was in January of 2022, I believe. So he was there in the firefight, uh, and it lasted over an hour. He said, yeah, it was very tough. I mean, we uh, the, the tires of my APC were shot out. I had to change vehicles. And so he didn't have that many people with him. I think he had like, again, 30 people. So I asked him, okay, well, how many casualties were did you have there that night? He said, oh, no, we, well, there's no We didn't have any casualties, and there well, did were did you able to were you able to kill any of the attackers? Oh no, no, no they uh oh yeah we he claimed we hit many of them Yeah, but the enemy removed the bodies of the they're killed and they're wounded in order to confuse the forensic investigation of our uh, of the action but let me tell you um that may be true, that may be true, but he told me further that prior to that engagement he had done a series of visits to all the community leaders and he called them peace building visits. Okay, he went around to the Fulani uh, chieftains and he went to the local uh, tribal, you know, the leader uh, to try and dissuade them from having uh, an engagement. Okay, now you guys are smart. Some of you maybe worked for State Department. I want you to ask yourself, what was really going on here? What was he really doing? I'll just leave it up to you to answer. There are many, many cases of these engagements where there are no casualties. When the military fires their weapons, I can give you a dozen stories we've published. So I finally came to this conclusion that the military is not trying to protect these people. Now here's the paradox. Paradox is that in other parts of Nigeria, they are fighting tooth and nail and at great risk to themselves to defeat the bandits. In the northwestern state of Niger, for example, there are many battles in which the Nigerian army loses a lot of people and they are fighting very hard. But the difference is that state of Niger is majority Muslim. State of Plateau is majority Christian. This is the middle belt. I'm going to go through this quickly here. I want to get, get out of this. Uh, this is my theory. This is my little my little thesis as to what's going on. Now imagine that in the Middle Belt, where there are forty-five million uh, people, uh, they have—they're un- either unarmed or they have shotguns. They are actually like prey. Think of that. I don't like this schematic. We're going to change it, but they're like the prey to the larger forces. Now there are two hundred thirty thousand armed military in Nigeria. Okay, uh, and if you count the community guards or the state-employed um, uh, militia, it's. Closer to over 300,000. However, Nigeria. this this is this army of 230,000 people is stretched very thin over a big country. And they are trying to put down a major insurgency in the Lake Chad region. They have, uh, they have internecine fights in the South Central. They've got a Biafra insurgency in the Southeast. And they have 30,000 bandits that are threatening uh, the, the government in the Central area. Okay, 600,000 police armed with assault rifles. They're supposed, to be, they're supposed to be protecting the people, but the police are sometimes corrupt. The, the military is also corrupt, but they are being paid. They are being paid by the federal government and they have a side income. The side income is bribes and sometimes they steal things. There are 9,000 insurgents in uh, Northeast in the Lake Chad region. This is the ISIS and the, the Islamic State of West Africa. These insurgencies have been active since 2011. Uh, and one of the questions is with all this military with these uh, sophisticated weapons and aircraft, how come th- they have not been able to defeat the insurgencies? So this is why I did this diagram. Now in the Southeast, you have, uh, we, we ha- we have 30,000 bandits. This, ski- this slide shows someone dressed as a hyena with an automatic weapon. They're not from the Southeast, they're in the Northwest. In fact, they're all over the North, but we have maps of the bandits in the Northwest. All these people against these little villager guys. So the, here's the point I want to make. The people with guns rule Nigeria. It's not unique, it happens in other countries, but the reason there's a 12-year endless war is that the people with the guns have no really incentive to end that war. Just let that sink in. The, we want to get to a place where all citizens are respected. Now, let's take a look at uh, Nigeria's challenges, lawlessness all over the country, terrorism, especially in terrorism in the Northeast and in the North Central, and it's growing, it's threatening the capital itself. The bandit gangs are now increasingly allying with Boko Haram, they say we're Boko Haram. uh, There's no real proof that they are, but they want the the banner of Boko Haram, okay. Nigeria has open borders. That's why you have uh, so many people from the Sahel are coming down to the south and staying. And many of the people coming down from the northern areas are Fulani herdsmen. And when they find out and they can make so much money by joining bandit gangs, well, why not? Well, that's why they stay. The country is divided by religion and ethnicity. Okay. It's, you can't say that black lives don't matter in Nigeria because you know, 99% of people are black, but... They are divided uh, along religious lines, Muslims and uh, Christians. They also have a problem with stolen elections. I know you never heard about this, right? Uh, all Nigerian elections in my memory are stolen. 2019, uh, 20 2019, uh, 2023, uh, Reverend Juma and I watched the election of 2023 online. The amazing thing is that you could see uh, the vote counting. You could see at by right Uh, polling station because it was all videotaped most of the polling stations were videotaped by the participants Uh, but they were when they were the aggregate results contradicted what we saw on videotape at the polling station directly contradicted so you can't i'm not a voting i'm not a polling expert but we could see the fraud the whole world could see the fraud but that election was ratified by it was ratified and it was certified by international observers, although there was, it was what criticized. US observer delegation gave it a, a clean bill of health with minor, minor objections. They didn't say it was the cleanest and fairest election in Nigerian history, thank, thank goodness. So what is Nigeria? Think about what you've just seen, okay? Now you, you see a country that's beset with lawlessness. You see a country with open borders. You see a country that has stolen elections. You see a country, that's also reeling under very severe inflation that is causing many people uh, to live on the verge of starvation. It is a, it is a country that could change at any moment. Now, this is our strongest ally in the United States, and in, in, in the world, okay? This is, our strong, this is our major ally. So what is Nigeria? Nigeria is us. The, the the fact is that Ni, Ni, Nigeria is so different from us in in a in a dozen ways. It's five thousand miles away, uh, different. You know, Three hundred ethnicities. Okay, uh, eighty five million people uh, live on two dollars a day. That's not us. But let's think about it in terms of existential choices. Okay, the what how the life or death decisions people make. Can they trust their own federal? Uh, agencies of law enforcement not to be weaponized against them. No, they cannot. Their their military and their police forces are in some cases, not all, but some cases weaponized against them. I think that's true of me. I trust my local police. I I think my local police in Greenbelt, Maryland are fantastic. But I have severe doubts about my FBI based upon what I've seen. Uh, there is increasing lawlessness in this country. There is also very high inflation. I think I'm not the only one that noticed it. So in terms of existential experience, I think Nigeria and the United States have a lot in common. Okay, so what is the way back? I think we have to offer a, now this may be the part of the my slideshow that you, you may not agree with. I'm a person who believes in the ideals of our US founders, but I'm not alone. The Nigerian thought leaders I'm talking to, they're telling me this. We want to have the same vision of our country that you have in the Declaration of Independence because we believe that all Nigerians are endowed with the same rights for uh, equality uh, and, with the, uh, and endowed by their creator with, uh, with life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the vision they want, okay? And they are thinking about structural reform. I believe that the way back, the way to uh, fundamental change in Nigeria is the adoption of universal values, which I think are based upon biblical wisdom, scientific truth, and common sense. You may disagree with me, that's okay. I'm, an, I'm also an opinion journalist, so that's my opinion. These, these foundations, I think, for our country uh, have produced a, a great functioning republic. We're not a true democracy. We're not a perfect democracy, all right? Now, the, bottom, the final thing that we have to discuss is, when we, we begin this discussion, what is Nigeria? It is a major US ally, right? But in order for it to be an alliance, it has to be an alliance with, based upon the same interest we have, which is a nation of rule of law, a, a, a government that is accountable to uh, the elected leaders a government where there is rule of law. Now, is that our country today? You know, when I went to briefings at the Republican in the, at the palace in Baghdad, you know, after engagements, you know, big fights, we would hear, um, sometimes military officers would say about the way they had conducted the fight. And I never forgot this. One, one officer said, you can't teach what you don't know and you can't go where you and you can't lead where you don't go. So if the United States wants an alliance based upon rule of law and democracy, we have to be that country. So therefore, I believe that there are core values that we want to instill in other countries. For Nigeria to succeed, it must tra- we must help it transition to a model of governance, the, the American model which is a model of democracy and prosperity, right? Because Nigeria is going to be hugely important. Nigeria could follow another path. Its number one trading partner is uh, is 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 China. The People's Republic of China have been investing in uh, in Africa for 30 years, and their model of governance and their economic model is completely contrary. It's a top-down model. It's it's an economic model dominated by central management they could the nigerians could go that way they don't want to go that way they don't like that model they like us but the their preconceived idea about the united states is the country we were 50 years ago it's not the country we are today they aren't saying yeah the nigerians are 99% religious muslim and and uh, christians they aren't like us they They're not saying, yeah, come to us, America, bring your porn and bring your pride parades and uh, bring all your social media nonsense. No, they're not asking for that. They're asking for the country we were. If we keep going the path that we're on right now, we're following the chaos that's happening in their country. Okay. And, okay, that's the end of my my presentation. My last slide is... uh, is, is a slide that I just put on there in case we post this uh, you know, this, this slideshow so if, in case people want to donate to Equipping the Persecuted. And I so, I'm sorry for talking too long, but I'd like to open up the floor for questions. <laughs> yes, sir.
3: You mentioned Muslims being expansionists, but you didn't mention
1: Christians in the country trying to expand that's correct. Is, is there
3: expansion of the Christians,
1: or is it just no. a birth rate? That's only No, no, the right? No, no, no. It's all Muslim expansion south, and this has been going on for twenty years. No, there are no cases of mobs of Christians that are cleansing out the Muslims uh, and taking over the land. No, no, uh, no. It's a, it's a steady encroachment, and uh, sir, uh, I was in Iraq when they we had hundreds of thousands of Assyrian Christians. Okay, while I was there, the the genocide really didn't take a a major step until I left. In 2014, ISIS came in, and the 125,000 Christians, the Assyrian Christians in the the Nineveh Plain, they had to leave. Some, Some of the people were enslaved. Many were killed. They went to surrounding countries. Now, most didn't return. That was the end of Christianity in northern Iraq. And in 2003, there was a million Assyrian Christians in Iraq. Okay, so I'm sorry. I got excited about Nigeria because I think the same thing could happen in Nigeria. It won't happen in a couple of years, but it could happen in 50 years. Mm -hmm. Sir? Um, I'm
0: curious, especially in Iraq and uh, seeing what we did there, how how would you incentivize the current regime in Nigeria to adopt
1: these western mores? Thank you. Thank you for this question. Okay, let me tell you Oh, that's very important. First off, uh, the Nigerians have to decide their course. They will make their government. And if they want to deal with terrorism, they will deal with it. If they want to deal with corruption, they have to deal with it. It's their country. But one thing that President Trump did in May, I think in May 12th or May 18th of 2018, he had a meeting at the Rose Garden at the White House with President Muhammadu Buhari. And the purpose of it was to announce a arms sale and uh, and to announce that, you know, the continuing friendship between the two countries. But what Donald Trump did was unprecedented. Someone had given him a folder uh, showing him about the massacres and the genocide in Nigeria. And he was shocked by it. So he just looked Buhari in the face and he said, why are you allowing the persecution of Christians on a massive scale? Now, Buhari was shocked by it. This was not in the talking points. Uh, But uh, I don't know how that ended, but we do know one thing. He went back to Nigeria and for six months, no attacks. So, is there a connection somehow between uh, the Fulani leadership in Abuja and the guys down at the grassroots level? I would say yes. So, one thing that one thing the United States can do is constructive engagement. Yes, we want to have a relationship with Nigeria because it's the most dominant country in the west West of Africa. Yeah, it's going to be the dominant country in all of Africa. So we want to help Nigeria to make a transition to a democratic, prosperous model. Okay, we want that to happen. Then it's a very strong ally of the United States. But we cannot do that if we are not true to our own ideals, if we don't embody the ideals of our founding documents. Yes? Thank you for asking this question. I came to give you a straight answer. They did that because the Nigerians wanted it. Now, I'm going to tell you, my friend is uh, Robert Destro, assistant, former assistant secretary of state. And he was there in Nigeria when they, uh, in the last part of 2020, uh, the State Department declared that Nigeria was a country of particular concern. That's a bad label. That is a humiliating, that's a label that they hate because it makes them look unstable and it makes it more difficult for them to get foreign loans And uh, Bob Destro was there meeting with the vice president and his delegation uh, to negotiate something. And he said at the end of the meeting, the vice president Obasanjo and the other guys, they left the room without the group picture. That was the sign that they hated that meeting. Okay, you always have to have a group picture, right? And they hated it because they were humiliated. But the fact is that that is their problem. And they don't want to be shamed. And they don't, don't, they don't want to be shamed by the white guys. But the fact is, if we are to help the persecuted Christians, we have to tell the truth. We have to stand up for the people who are losing their lives. Okay, even if it makes the president, the vice president, and everybody in town uncomfortable. We cannot stand by while the people in the Warsaw Ghetto get mowed down and, and killed by the Nazis and not say anything about it. We cannot be like the corrupt British journalist Walter Durante, who was representing the New York Times, and he was in Ukraine in 1932 and all through the 30s, and he was uh, singing the uh, singing the praises of Joseph Stalin and what a what a great paradise the Soviet Union was creating in Ukraine. When in fact, uh, Joseph, Joseph Stalin was uh, executed. He was, was he was uh, implementing a man-made uh, genocide. It's a famine. I would like to, yes, sir. If I could ask a question
3: focused on Americans, um, how, the, how Americans there have been, been attacked and what kind of presence have we in terms of business, military,
1: uh, uh, State Department numbers, those sorts of categories? Thank you, sir. We have a aid package, an annual aid package to Nigeria of $1.6 billion. And the, there is a, quite a bit of military aid uh, there, uh, the United under, under Trump, there, the deal was made. We agreed to sell twelve of the Embraer attack aircraft, which they wanted, uh, to to suppress the genocide. Here's the deal: the number one export to the United to Nigeria is grain, and then it's automobiles, and then it's other things, uh, also refined oil products. Okay, now much of the aid of that 1.6 billion dollars much of it is actually coming it's coming to inside the beltway groups that are lobbying for their industries you know they're lobbying for the grain they're lobbying for big pharma so u.s government is buying the vaccines they're buying the medical stuff they're giving it to nigeria Nigeria, but who's benefiting these american pharmaceutical companies okay so I've, I've contacted my sources in Nigeria and asked them, ask them how, how effective is USAID? Is it giving the, the, the humanitarian aid to the people in, uh, in the camps, the IDP camps? Do, you know, the official number is there's 2.5 million uh, internally displaced people. That's a lie. We just published, A couple of days ago, we published the true story. It's over 6 million people that are living in squalid, internally displaced persons camps. They are not getting the aid, they're starving to death. These people are so, uh, they are so hungry that they risk their lives, they leave the IDB camp at night, they go out back out to their farms where the Falani herdsmen are, are giving watch to dig up potatoes or do some fishing and on the way back, the Falani terrorists kill them. That happens all the time. Anything else? I would like to recognize uh, Reverend uh, Juma Ibiyelasi because he is a personal friend. He's he's from the South. And I would like to ask him if you would like to uh, ask a question or make a statement about elections.
3: Well, um, I can tell you the feeling, uh, the, the atmosphere in the whole of Nigeria, irrespective of what party or what religion or what ethnicity. What has just happened with the election, it's still something a whole lot of Nigerians are still trying to come to dance with. First, it was a Muslim, Muslim ticket, which is like something that was of concern because when you have a Christian and a Muslim, that is expected to be some form of balance. Now, the other thing was also looking at the results, um like you rightly mentioned we observed it what was recorded in the polling stations were different from what was reported posted on the INEC, which was the independent election so the two major contested parties challenged that and at the end of the day it went to supreme court and even the day the result was given it was a scene there is um the debt in the land everywhere was so sad. And given the inflation and how terrible things are now, um, my concern is how can America help to rectify this? Because what we have now, beyond just saying stolen election, it is something that the people don't want. And if you go to the street out I, I visited that just a few, weeks ago, I can tell you, less than every one mile, you will see police checkpoints spotting money from the people who are also suffering, and yet there is no protection. So um, it's really disturbing,
2: and uh, that be my little comment.
1: Thank you, sir. God bless. So I don't want to overstay. I don't want to, to overstay. I, I know we're toward the end of this. Uh, we are at the end of this lecture. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, talk to me afterwards if you'd uh, like a card. If you'd like to contact primary sources in Nigeria and talk to the reporters or talk to eyewitnesses, I will give those people to you. My email is doug at truthnigeria.com. That's doug at truthnigeria.com. Now, the email I usually use is Burton News and views at gmail.com. burtonnewsandviews at gmail.com. Thank you very much.